Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Chit Heads. My guest today is Joe Loizzo. Joe holds an MD and a PhD, is a contemplative psychotherapist, clinical researcher, and Buddhist scholar teacher who integrates ancient contemplative science and technology with current breakthroughs in neuroscience and optimal health. After training in psychiatry at Harvard and completing a PhD in Buddhist studies at Columbia, he founded Nalanda Institute for Contemplative Science, a nonprofit that helps people build sustainable happiness, compassion, and leadership through integrating science-based contemplative skills into their daily lives. On faculty at the Weill Cornell Center for Integrative Medicine and the Columbia University Center for Buddhist Studies, Dr. Loizzo lectures widely on the role of meditative learning in the future of health, education, and leadership, and teaches regular public classes and workshops at his Nalanda Institute and Tibet House U.S., in 2007, he published Nagarjuna's Reason 60 with Chandakirti's Commentary, a translation study of contemplative self-analysis in Buddhism. His second book, Sustainable Happiness, The Mind Science of Well-Being, Altruism, and Inspiration, appeared in the Rootledge Behavioral Science series in 2012. He has published dozens of chapters and articles on contemplative science in peer-reviewed books and journals, including the Journal of Religion, the Annual Review of Psychiatry, and the Annals of the New York Academy of Sciences. Dr. Luizzo has a private psychotherapy practice in Manhattan, where he lives with his wife, Geraldine, and their sons, Maitreya and Ananda. So with that, hello, Joe. Thanks so much for joining us. Hello, Jacob. It's a, it's a joy to be with you. Look forward to some stimulating dialogue. Yes, I'm really looking forward to this. I actually just finished uh, watching or listening to your um, the talk that you gave for our Buddhism conference, and it really was one of my favorite talks. And so I'm really excited to talk to you a little more about some of the stuff you brought up. <clears throat> Great. Well, we'll talk. I, you talked uh, mainly in that um, talk about the three waves of Buddhist practice. And we are going to talk a little bit about that later on. But I did want to focus on, in a lot of this interview, on your work really focusing on the um, the research around meditation and the, and the scientific studies that have been done, um, sort of proving or, or, or clearing up or bringing to the fore the benefits of meditation in various ways. But before we get started with that conversation, I would love to just hear a little bit about your personal story, what led you to the study of Buddhism and, and, and also what led you to found the Nalanda Institute. All right. Uh, so I grew up in the, in the uh, a home with sort of two kind of, my parents followed kind of a different path. They're both uh, raised as Catholic. Mm. Uh, my dad, however, sort of was, more, was enamored of science, went into medicine and eventually became a psychiatrist. So sometimes I joke that my career is a, uh, an inherited condition. Yeah. Uh, in any case, I, I, my mom was a, uh, actually raised in Sicily and uh, was a, uh, became a teacher of history and social studies here in the U.S. And uh, so she remained more connected to her kind of spiritual roots, which were you know, quiet but very powerful. Mm -hmm. um, and I sort of had a little firsthand controlled experiment because she sort of got more peaceful and more, uh, you know, joyful with age. And he sort of wore down over time with the stresses of his practice and kind of having given up any connection to contemplation or spirituality, getting into the grind of, of our modern way of life. 
So, uh, so in thinking about whether to pursue, you know, to become a teacher, essentially, like my mom or a therapist, like my dad, I, uh, those were, I think, really both attracted me in different ways. I, uh, I only, I made a sort of bargain with myself or whatever that I would only really consider medicine if I found a way to integrate contemplation back into it. So, and then it so happened I went to uh, Amherst College and and because I was fascinated with religion and psychology and like Jung and all of this stuff, mm-hmm. I my first class in religion, uh, it turned out to be also Bob Thurman's first class teaching uh, at Amherst College. And, uh, and, you know, that was that. I started hearing about Tibetan Buddhism and I said, oh my God, here's this uh, uh, beautiful blend of science, psychology, um, that's a little bit more whatever critical thinking or modern or progressive, uh, but also has this deep contemplative uh, element still preserved. Mm. So I just fell in love with the culture and studied very intensively with Bob um, and always really had had uh, conflict about you know whether or not I should uh, work as a teacher or as a uh, you know, as a professor or as a uh, as a psychiatrist or therapist, um, and it just turned out that you know that that was sort of a joke, a waste of energy because it, you know, while I went back and forth, I dropped out of medical school because it didn't suit me, um, you know, and went to India, and then I was sort of encouraged to go back. Uh, you know, I uh, I went to California. Uh, looking for a more receptive environment. But when I came back to New York, actually, that was when I decided once again, a second time, to sort of give up medicine, become a, a professor. I went to graduate school with Bob, who was by then at at, um, at Columbia. And it turned out the world had sort of changed around me, and it really wasn't necessary for me to choose anymore. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, my, my colleagues, I had a part-time position in in the psychiatry department, and they said, well, why don't you found one of these, you know, uh, meditation uh, centers, because it seems like that's all the rage nowadays. (laughs) So that's when I founded a center for meditation and healing at Columbia Presbyterian. And uh, and at the same time as I was finishing my dissertation, sort of these two parts of my life were coming together. Um, I eventually felt that, uh, that the, that, Neither the the kind of academic university, the graduate school, or the uh, uh, the, the, the medical, you know, the hospital, uh, New York hospital, was the best place for me to do my work because they're just it, both very hard places to create the kind of intensive, multidisciplinary healing and learning environment that I believe people need. Mm-hmm. So uh, I basically started Nalanda Institute really fairly soon after graduating uh, from my PhD program to make this stuff available to the public in a way that was, you know, I mean, the irony was, for example, I could teach meditation in the psychiatry department, but I couldn't teach, you know, ethics, philosophy, or, you know, um, you know, the kind of spiritual dimensions of of Dharma or Buddhist practice. Uh, in the religion department, I could teach philosophy, ethics, and spirituality, but I couldn't teach meditation. <laughs> right, right. So the way our academic world and the way our, our the business of medicine is structured just doesn't really provide for a space for the whole person. And the, that, you know, that's what I loved about 
about Buddhism is that it really addresses the whole person um, and kind of helps us, you know, both find a different way to be in our bodies and live every day, but also helps kind of open our minds to the larger questions or perspectives of, you know, of what we can do, of our potential. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought up uh, the point about the limitations of academia, because that's what I really admire about the Nalanda Institute, which seems to be kind of at the forefront of this new wave of scholar practitioners who are recognizing that you know, to to the, the the specialized nature of academia is is actually um, is constraining for the types of practices and, and research that that we're looking to do with these you know um, traditions inspired by the East. Um, do you have any other kind of remarks about the limitations of academia and what it is about kind of the philosophy of the academy that makes it such a sometimes a not so fertile soil for this kind of work? Yeah, and I've thought quite a bit about this, as you can imagine. And, I mean, you're, I'm always interested in history. So if you look at the development of the modern university, it started coming out of the monastery. Mm. Just like the Buddhist universities, you know, uh, started out as just simple monasteries. Uh, however, in the Renaissance and Enlightenment, as we, as the modern West started to pull away from its religious roots, uh, it became more and more, like more and more of the traditional elements of education, like ethics and contemplation, the things that affected the human being, us, affected us as individuals, like sort of helped us become better humans, right? Those things got thrown out. Yeah. And increasingly became just knowledge and expertise. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, then in addition, you have this whole analytical bent of the modern scientific mind, which wants to, you know, like from Francis Bacon and others, wants to sort of, you know, try to quote unquote understand reality, or, uh, you know, uh, he actually said torture nature's secrets out of her. Right. Wow. <laughs> a very interesting. Little interesting slip. that it made her feminine. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. But but his approach was that it, we were like worker bees, and we had to each person had to sort of break down a little part of reality. Yeah and break it into little pieces in order for us to really know anything. And from a Buddhist point of view, that's just vastly underestimating the capacity of the human mind. And the Buddhist approach is to, and, and I mean, in their view, not only can the human mind understand the big picture and put it all together, as well as the details, but we have to, like we can't actually live a good life or run a good civilization if we're not better human beings, if we don't have our, head, our, our stuff together and that's where I like. I very much admire the, the the theme of your of your group, the you know embodied philosophy, because that's part of the whole understanding that we need to, you know, remember that we're just human animals, and that we can't actually know more, do more, or think more than our human potential or capacity permits us to do. So we have to really the sort of the modern culture has sort of given up on human uh, improvement and said that's just a sentimental project. It's not really essential to progress or civilization. And that's really what the ancient traditions are saying to us um, and what we're discovering actually ironically through modern science, which is that, no, you can't take the subject out of knowledge. You can't take the human mind and body out of knowledge. Otherwise, you just get information. You just get gobbledygook. Right. 
Is that sort of reflected a little bit in the recent kind of, I guess it's quantum physics observation that, you know, the subject is always a part of the experiment? Is it that sort of idea? It is. It is. I mean, it's just it's just the reality of the situation that we, you know, we, we can't, you know, we have a tendency to kind of forget ourselves and run from ourselves and look for something. We want to look for the answer somewhere outside of ourselves. But, we, you know, the reality is that it's only really going to help us as embodied beings who have human minds and bodies and and those human minds and bodies have to be understood and taken care of. It's not like some esoteric bit of knowledge far away on Jupiter, or now we're thinking this, you know, the the, the new planet that you, that they just discovered somewhere four four light years away uh, is going to make us, you know, give us what we need to be wise, healthy, happy people. And all all civilizations have, especially since the the axial age, since the dawn of the city states and the shift toward urban society uh, back in the time of Buddha and 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 uh, Socrates and so on. You know, everybody's known that. It's the, the key to a, a healthy society and civilization is making healthy, happy human beings. Mm. But our modern civilization has sort of for conveniently or whatever forgotten that and said, no, we're not, we're just not, we're too flawed. We can't be we can't ever really be happy, you know, uh, as we are. We need some kind of uh, uh, secret knowledge or, or power or something that that's you know scarce and far away for us to pursue. <laughs> yeah, right. So then, one more question, just about the academy. So, do you think that um, extra academic projects like the Nalanda Institute and other projects? are going to encourage a sea change in the culture of the academy? Do you see that happening? Or do you think that, uh, you know, th that people will always need to seek elsewhere for that kind of integrated approach? I think that, you know, uh, I mean, I, I, for many years I was, you know, I, I've been extremely pessimistic about uh, modern education because uh, my, of my experience in medical education, which was, really forged in the 19th century and, right. you know, hasn't changed very much at all, to be very frank about it. That's uh, unfortunate. <laughs> yes. But I mean, the bottom line is that if you just look at the research and you look at the change in both popular and professional consciousness about the importance of emotion, of personal meaning, well-being, the kinds of things that the ancients have always been trying to get us to focus on. Mm -hmm. um, I, I really think that neuroscience, for example, is going to lead the way uh, back to a more embodied or integrated, emotionally intelligent uh, mode of education. I, I very much believe that. It's just sort of a matter of time. And, mm -hmm. and some of it may just be, you know, as, as uh, Kuhn talked about the need for new generations to come to bring the new paradigm. Mm. Some of it may just take a couple of generations for people who just understand that just knowledge, just expertise is not enough to, to you know, make a, make a happy person or a, or a happy society. Mm. It's interesting that you mentioned neuroscience is paving that way because, you know, neuroscience, 
garners a lot of respect within um, the Western scientific world. And so, and, and so it's interesting that it, what you're essentially saying is that you really, we have, really have to beat the culture at its own game by allowing one of its own internal disciplines like neuroscience to really point us back to something that you know, the contemplative um, traditions have been saying for quite a long time. Exactly. I mean, because in a sense, modern science historically is founded on a kind of schism or war of religion or war of ideology with with uh, modern, with ancient uh, Western uh, Judeo-Christian religion. Mm -hmm. It's sort of, you know, considered it, it considered religion uh, as a kind of repressive or confused, deluded, uh, authoritarian. Uh, in part because some of the, you know, the, the church perhaps had some of those elements in it uh, and, and didn't welcome science like Buddhism generally does, for example. But nonetheless, we threw the baby out with the bathwater. We kind of went to the other extreme, and our whole science is sort of based on a kind of suspicion of anything that has any connection or resemblance to anything spiritual, contemplative, ethical, or anything like that. As, as if it's really just hogwash or mind control or whatever, some other kind of uh, uh, superstition. Um, and, and so it is kind of like, uh, this is part of the way the Buddhist logic works. I mean, in Buddhism, you, you can never real in their view, it just really isn't skillful or, or efficient to try to convince another person based on your experience. You've got to help the other person take their experience and follow it out to the point where they see the flaws in their own, you know, way of thinking or living. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what therapists do all the time. We don't tell people, oh, here's what's wrong with you, what you should do. We wait, the, we let them figure it out themselves following the trail of their suffering. Mm. So as a psychotherapist then, and I want to move into this conversation about meditation and the research around it, as a psychotherapist, do you prescribe a meditation in, in a way that you might prescribe, you know, a pill? I do. I mean, I usually don't do it unless, you know, most of the people that come to see me, I kind of have a, a special practice, which of course is increasingly becoming more and more mainstream. So, uh, you know, but, you know, if somebody comes, uh, a lot of people that come to me really are already interested, either they're interested in learning how they can use meditation to make more progress than they have perhaps in other therapies or on their own, or perhaps they're, they come with a, a meditative practice and they're wanting to get more traction out of it. Mm -hmm. So I will, for those people, definitely, uh, that's part of why the Institute exists from my point of view is... I think it's more fun, more effective for people to learn how to meditate in in a kind of learning community yeah. than it is to, for me to try to teach them in, therapy, in, in my individual sessions. Mm. So I say, well, here are some classes or, or, you know, if they have their own connection, I say, you know, why don't you develop that? And I help them work with and make the most of whatever it is, whether a different, whether it's their religious tradition or uh, some other kind of meditation or yoga practice. Mm. So, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, it's fa- it's fascinating that you know, and you mentioned the importance of community. I guess would, the idea would be sangha within the, the Buddhist tradition, and, and it, it, because I, I, ta- I was actually talking about this in a in another interview I did, where you know we often associate meditation with kind of a, a solitary practice. You know, I'm sitting down on my mat and I'm closing out the world, um, but really you you find a much kind of deeper connection when you actually find a kind of community of, of seekers or meditators who are doing the same kind of work. Um, so it's, I'm so I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah, I really feel that the, you know, uh, that the community aspect, the communal experiencing, sharing, is a- absolutely vital and dis- indispensable. I think you know the Buddha was wise <laughs> to make that one of the three jewels or, or refuges. We're such social animals. Yeah, and and I've seen this just in psychotherapy. You know it. Individual therapy can be a powerful catalyst in transforming a person, helping them transform themselves, whatever. But there's something missing when there isn't a, a, some kind of social uh, transformation as well. Yeah. And that's why I often encourage people, even if they're not interested in, in Buddhism or, or spirituality or whatever, to do things. Like, there's not enough group therapy around. I think group therapy can be enormously helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but also I encourage them to, say, try recovery if they have a, uh, some kind of addictive habit or pattern or, or um, you know, or to try some kind of, you know, communal experience uh, because I think that, um, you know, when you're learning with others, it has the, the opportunity to heal a kind of the, whatever went wrong in your family. You know, with an individual, you, you you have the experience that some relationships can be better, but that doesn't actually tell you that communities can be better. Groups can work in a healthier way, and that right. it's so vital to us as human beings to have another understanding of how we can be in a group. That I really feel that aspect is it's not just helpful to, for support; it's also vital to learning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I sort of had a vision when you were talking of like a, an American culture of meditators, and it seemed like a very happy idea. Right. Um, so let's move into actually a talk of, of meditation a little bit, because um, what I think is a little interesting is that there are, you know, there's like essentially two, maybe more streams of people who um, who enter meditation, one who are captured simply by the spiritual um, component or the tradition and, and, and the possibility of illumination or awakening in some way. And then there are many others who are not captured by that at all and think that's sort of hocus pocus and they want to know the science behind it. And so a lot of the work that you've really done has been to you know, highlight some of this research. So I'm wondering if you would mind sharing a little bit, I don't know, maybe may- three or um, a few main kind of um, uh, discoveries as of late around meditation that might be inspiring for people. Sure. I'm, I'm always happy to do this. And, and I think, you know, I, I went, you know, part of the reason I went into medicine, as opposed to, say, going into psychology or something else, was because I, I felt that, you know, understanding how the brain worked um, would, and understanding how meditation or contemplative experience affected the brain would really be necessary to, 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 to close the deal mm-hmm. with Americans. And I, part of it was also probably because on some level it was necessary for me. We're science-educated people. We, we know or we believe we have brains. We believe we have nervous systems. So we're always wondering, perhaps unlike somebody who's grown up in this tradition, how, well, how does that actually work 
you know, in terms of what I know. So I find that both groups of people you mentioned, the spiritual seekers and the kind of health or well-being seekers or, or relief seekers, actually both benefit mm -hmm. from hearing more about the science because it, it just closes a loop in terms of our Western mind and our curiosity about ourselves. Yeah. Um, so a couple of studies, I mean, I, and, you know, there's a couple of studies that I think um, I would say uh, are profound, um, you know, if I had to pick the three most important studies of the uh, of the last 15 years, which have been really amazing. I mean, like, uh, I just can't believe I'm, 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 you know, I have to pinch myself how how wonderful it is what's what mm. we're learning. Anyway, so the first I would say uh, the thing that the groundbreaking study that brought meditation into the mainstream of Western neuroscience, because obviously, as you can imagine, meditation research was not particularly thought of as relevant. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and uh, Richie Davidson was one of the people um, who uh, was charged by His Holiness the Dalai Lama to try to change that. Uh, and he had his own sort of mission, of course, uh, to do that. And, and he and his colleagues, uh, one particularly Antoine Lutz, uh, at the uh, the Institute for the Study of the Healthy Minds at uh, at the University of Wisconsin Madison did some studies on Tibetan monks, showing that uh, they could go when they they went into certain kinds of meditations, uh, compassion meditations actually, um, that stimulated the way their brains were working in a in a, in a way that was completely unprecedented. So, and particularly, um, you know, they're brain waves, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, they're different kinds of brain waves. The kind of highest frequency brain wave is called the gamma wave. Mm. And that suggests that the brain is really working, uh, that it's very stimulated, it's very active. And it's not so common that there are uh, extended trains of gamma waves. It's even less common that, that gamma waves spread synchronously through uh much of the cortex, and particularly what what got the attention of the scientific community was that it's thought that gamma activity may be related to the big, you know, Nobel Prize-winning discovery of neuroscience in the last 30 years, which is neuroplasticity. Yeah. So, uh, so the fact, so essentially, what Richie and Antoine discovered was that uh, these uh, meditators could self-generate at will these gamma waves for far longer than had ever been recorded, um, that they were synchronously uh, unifying the activity of the whole neocortex, the whole, you know, primate brain or that, you know, uh, higher brain, um, and, that, and that they could do it at will. Mm -hmm. In other words, they could consciously turn it on or turn it off. Wow. And, and that study published in 2004 was the first study on meditation to ever be published in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, which is, of course, the most prestigious, uh, you know, journal of science, you know, in in the in the states uh, and probably in the world. And so, um, it kind of represents a little, you know, chink in the armor or breaking through the dam or whatever of resistance, suspicion, skepticism, and and what it does effectively, what it did as a, as a as a study was to put meditation squarely on the map of modern neuroscience as the 
best, the, the only real empirically, you know, validated paradigm of self-regulating plasticity. That is, you know, we have all kinds of capacities. When we can consciously turn them on or turn them off, control them, we call that conscious self-regulation. So the idea that here's a way we could get our brains to really get into the mode of learning and transforming themselves uh, really suddenly puts meditation right up against neuroplasticity as the tool, you know, to, you know, to give us access to that. Mm. So, so that was that. That's a very very powerful study, which Richie likes to talk about, understandably. Um, what I love about that is, um, it, particularly, is the you know we have this kind of colloquial. I think it's still quite prevalent of the idea that the brain is like a determining, you know, it, it basically determines everything that we do, and what that sort of um, uh, shifts for me and in, in my own imagination is like is the shift from the brain determining consciousness to consciousness determining the brain in a certain kind of way. Totally. And, and, and then, so the brain becomes less of kind of, you know, the source of all experience and more of a mediating instrument in a certain kind of way. Right. And this goes back to the whole sort of, you know, our culture, our modern culture and the way we've fallen in love with physics and have come to think of matter as realer than mind. Right. And as physics has become more and more intangible and our understanding of the power of the mind has shown that more and more that it actually has physical power, that it mm. changes the way the brain works. It's turning that whole kind of modern materialism or the, the worldview that says mind doesn't really matter. It's just along for the ride. Uh, and everything is brain. Uh, and the brain is like the, you know, the, the, the robot that's, the, you know, the how that's, that's programming us. Um, and uh, so it is a really exciting. Yeah, it's super interesting. And, and, um, you know, the other, uh, you know, the other, uh, of course, it's interesting, of course, the clinicians, too, because, you know, people like Norman Doidge or, or uh, Eric Kandel, who got the Nobel Prize for this research, uh, are also uh, psychiatrists. And they really talked about a whole new paradigm for psychiatry and psychotherapy based on the understanding of plasticity and the trend. The, the understanding that the brain is transformable through repeated practice mm -hmm. and this whole notion of, you know, neurons that fire together, wire together, right? This whole notion that um, mental activity, attentional activity causes or promotes energy uh, activity, energetic activity in nerve cells. And that energetic activity actually creates new connections um, that, transform the way the brain is wired or works mm. um, is really key to sort of opening up a whole new promise. It's not just uh, relevant to meditation. It's relevant to everything that we need to change for. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. So so it's very it's big. It's big stuff. Um, the other studies. So I went to a conference in uh, uh, in California, the first uh, symposium on uh, I, I think I may have mentioned this in my talk on contemplative studies, I don't remember, it was a couple of years back, uh, thinking that it was going to be all about mindfulness research, which has been so promising and, and exciting. Uh, and then it turned out that, that most of the new papers were about compassion. Mm. So, so the sec my second sort of, you know, favorite pick <laughs> amongst the sort of massive studies that are coming out, there's a group, actually a group of studies 
that were all conducted on a, on a similar kind of intervention uh, called a compassion training uh, models. You know, th there were there are several several different sort of brands of compassion training floating around out there, but they're all based on Tibetan uh, mind training practices, what the Tibetans called mind training, lojong, which is really compassion training. Mm. And, and anyway, these studies showed something remarkable. So you know how, um, I mean, in, in, the, in the opening of his book, Dan Goleman wrote this that amazing book, Emotional Intelligence. And in the opening of the book, he describes how a, a woman comes on the bus uh, and she's quite expansive. I don't know. I guess. I guess. I'm not sure if he was. This was somebody else told him the story, or he he was riding the New York City bus at the time. Uh, but uh, the woman, um, with her expansive start, uh, emotional tone, started talking to the bus driver and creating a sort of some sort of field of of, of trust and and interest and excitement. And then people around her started joining it. And he talked about this kind of the power of positive emotion to transform. And there have been a number of researchers that got involved in that. But he also talked about something what he, which he called social contagion. Hmm. And that is the flip side, which is that when somebody's feeling negative, our first, whether they're whatever, angry at us or just sort of upset, our first response to get using, upset. <laughs> using our mirror neurons, yeah. we sort of read their facial expression or body language with these specific empathy empathic kind of mirror neurons and we and we remember we call up out of our amygdala and elsewhere our hippocampus memories of when we felt you know our face might have looked like that or our body might have looked like that right and we relive a, a, a upsetting potentially traumatic experience so we so so that's why if you know if you're upset i'm upset you know th this happens always in couples for example you know one person gets angry the other person gets angry um <laughs> And panic can be the same, right? That you know, one person gets panicked, the other person gets mad. Yeah. So, so that's the normal way that the the instinctive way that the brain responds to distress, and and of course, it's part of what has generated this whole culture, uh, which is especially prevalent in medicine, to be afraid of empathy, and to be kind of avoidant of people who suffer. It's part of like what our structures, our whole civilization, our whole society is. You want to isolate yourself in the suburbs or in some beautiful, you know, uh, island somewhere, build walls around you, and then you'll have a pleasure down. Uh, and as if we can ever really isolate ourselves from other people. Right. But that's really because we're afraid of how we react to, to experiencing or encountering suffering. And, and th these studies have shown that through this Tibetan-based practice of compassion training, uh, college students could change the way the, their brain responded to images of suffering, of people suffering, uh, in, in four or five sessions, depending on the particular study. Uh, the people that did this were actually, many of them were uh, students of, of Ritchie, but others uh, related to Tanya Singer in Germany. Um, but in any case, these people, uh, you know, the brain then shifted. So this, this kind of uh, social contagion is kind of like a stress response. Yeah. And I, I don't even call it empathy. I call it sympathy. In other words, we're feeling what the other person, what we think the other person is feeling, um, rather than really th kind of trying to understand them as another human being. Mm. Um, the, and there, of course, the amygdala is very active. Mm -hmm. So that's the alarm bell of the brain. That's the part of us that hijacks the higher cortex, panics us, 
starts triggering the stress response. Um, and, and one of the things that hijacks is all of our social skills. We don't really care that much about the other person because now we're scared. And we're afraid that we're going to catch it. Mm -hmm. So we start running away from them. So what this found is that in these four or five sessions of training, these college students' brains instead had less reactivity, less connectivity with the with the uh, amygdala, the alarm bell, and instead several other parts of the brain became more active. Mm. One of them was the executive or prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain that starts planning what I can do. The other was the uh, and anterior cingulate, which is a part of the brain that's sort of uh, between the, the the primate brain and the mammal brain. Uh, it's actually within the emotional mammal, you know, mammalian emotional brain, the limbic system. And it starts to get us ready to respond. And what's even more profound and more exciting is that it this the system, this training started to show increased activity in what's called the internal reward system. That is the system that makes us feel good. Mm. It's the system that get, gets goes a little haywire in addiction, but also is totally part of what's called the well-being system, which makes us feel content, uh, uh, satisfied about ourselves, good about ourselves. It's that the whole engine of positive psychology. Mm. And so there we were seeing this is kind of like a, a lab experiment in positive psychology, showing that with four to five sessions of training, these just naive college students could change from being reactive to suffering, from being reactive to being proactive and being from feeling bad and frightened and upset, traumatized by suffering to being to feeling empowered and caring and connecting in a positive and meaningful way. So that's a, a very powerful group of studies uh, that uh, gives us a lot of hope, gives me a lot of hope, and I hope it should, I think it should give others hope about you know humanity, about our potential to to become more caring, yeah, um, and also raises a real important question about why aren't we teaching this these skills? Right, and then it goes back to what I said about the West jettisoning you know, contemplative education, ethical education, because if we were if we were raised in a monastery, we would be learning those skills. <laughs> totally, totally. Well, I mean, that's a, you know, ethics seems to be, I mean, the, the, we, we, we often categorize ethics as separate from morality, but really, you know, the only place in which you hear that nowadays is, is within some kind of spiritual or religious tradition, but it's often, they're often, um, um, posited as things that have been handed down by some kind of, you know, absolute godhead. And so it's understandable then that there's kind of a resistance to ethics kind of in a, in a certain kind of way by, you know, whomever, um, because it's been, it's been associated with, with, um, I don't know, paternalistic regimes for so yeah. long. Yeah. Don't tell me what to do. Don't, don't, don't make me feel bad. Yeah. And, and this is part of the, the, the revolution of psychotherapy was that Freud really said the demands of religion are, you know, unrealistic, and they're actually really just repressive, and that the the the, the conscience that um, that is, you know, that that we develop is like stationing a police squad in our in our minds. Um, that would be, in, in other words, it's a kind of internal repression force. 
Yeah. And we all res we're right to resist that. On the other hand, you can go to the other extreme where you think that the only solution then is just do whatever you want mm -hmm. and just go for the go for the gusto, you know, eat, drink and be merry. And actually, that's not true either, because what ends up happening is that if we indulge our our negative our negative impulses, our stress responses and so on and so forth, we get sick. We don't wind up happy. We wind up depressed or anxious. We, you know, um, we don't perform as well. You know, it just is really corrosive. And so this is another part of the, I guess, the revolution of positive psychology, effective neuroscience. Um, all of these things are really sort of giving us a secular, scientifically based understanding that what the religious traditions all along have been saying is actually basically right. Yeah. Maybe the tone is off. And I mean, I always said as a, as a Catholic, you know, you know, you, people tell me to be like selfless and compassionate like Christ, but they don't exactly tell me how to do it. <laughs> mm -hmm. So that's one element is the kind of, there's a difference between using morality to shame people into submission or be, or obedience and using ethics in a more like classical way, like the Greeks and the Buddhists did, uh, to empower people to learn how to, to you know, the art of, to learn the art of happiness, to learn the art of good living, and you know, doing the things or feeling the things that actually bring happiness and and you know, uh, better relations with others. So so that's the kind of that secular we can, we now call it eudaimonia, you know, because people like Greek Greek words. Yes. But really, it's just about the science of happiness. Amazing. So is that three? Did we do th the three you we mentioned? Did the, no, the th no the I thought third, there was one more. Okay, so the third study I'm really, uh, third, uh, study I'm really interested in is a study that, that gives us a window onto this whole, another really remarkable revolution in current n neuroscientific or physiological understanding that's about the uh, vagal uh, nervous yeah, system right. or the, the, the autonomic nervous system. And... You know what we what we you know we come to understand is that the the autonomic nervous system is much more complicated than we thought, and that we as mammals have uh, a new kind of um, uh, branch or or equipment, uh, auto, you know, autonomic equipment. And what that equipment is designed to do is to uh, allow us to stay more sociable and more secure in in social situations so that we can, you know, not freak out and not get stress reactive and not trigger the primitive stress re responses. So there's a study uh, using, uh, you know, this bare awareness meditation, for example, that comes also from the Tibetan tradition that, um, that I find very powerful. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a, a system of meditation that uh, is designed to kind of help dissolve the experience of separateness between ourselves and others and help us feel uh, safely connected to the world around us. Mm. Um, it also often uses imagery that is like positive images of mentors or loving, caring people uh, or affirmations, mantras uh, that give us positive messages that we're safe, that that the world is a good place, that we're good creatures. Um and with this kind of technology, the, there's a part of the brainstem where the, the brainstem social engagement system, where the vagal nervous system is, is based or where the nuclei of the, of the 
vagal nerves are. Uh, and it turns out that the gray matter in that part of the brainstem grows significantly in people who practice this kind of meditation. Wow. So, so it's really, really interesting because it says even that kind of, that deep in our brains, right down to the brainstem, like the reptilian brain, this kind of meditation practice reaches all the way deep down inside, and it changes the fundamental way our, our stress response, our stress versus care responses work. And, you know, there's that this sort of gray matter to prove it, that we've kind of exercised and increased um, our ability to, to stay in uh, calm, socially present mode, but also to control, to consciously have an a, a hand on the gear shift of our whole nervous system to kind of keep things calm um, using this very simple practice. So it's another really, it's done by Vestergaard Poulsen and another group of people. I, I don't remember exactly what university they're at, but another wow. far out study. <laughs> wow, that's incredible. Yeah, those are all really exciting. And and I'm, I'm sure the listeners are going to get a, a lot out of that because I think it's really important. And, and like you said before, it does really, I mean, even though I, I definitely feel like I'm invested in my meditation practice for more than simply health benefits, um, I definitely, it de you're right, that it, it sort of closes a circuitry in a certain kind of way for, for those of us Westerners who have been, you know, whether or not we need, you know, think we need the science or not, it, 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 I mean, it's embedded in our very culture to to um, to look at the world in this way. So thank you so much for sharing that. I don't know if I have too much time to go into. I, I, we have 10 minutes, and I'm sensitive that you have to go to your client. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the subtle body, so maybe we can do a very abridged version. Oh, um, the subtle body, yes. Yeah, because I, I was reading your article, which is very scientific, and I, and I couldn't understand all of it, but it was all very exciting. But one question I had was, you know, and, I, and I've heard this before, this kind of mapping of, of the subtle body onto the central nervous system, but I guess in line with what I'm just mentioning about sort of um, – I, I guess what one thing that I uh, sometimes I'm sensitive about in kind of the sci the scientizing I'm making up that word of of some of these traditions is the kind of is the potential reduction to um, to just sort of like wellness or or, or health and 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 kind of maybe um, silently shirking um, itself of of kind of what a lot of these traditions see themselves as being which are recipes for spiritual awakening. So in in the article and, may, and I didn't read all of it so I don't know if it was mentioned. Um, but I, I was sort of curious what your thoughts were about, for example, like um, uh, uh, I, I mean, I'm very familiar with the Shaiva Tantra tradition because I consider it my own. But there's, you know, there's a there's a lot of discussion around, um, you know, these as being the chakras being as visualization tools that are effectively strategies for um, projecting mantras onto the body. And as a result of this kind of you know, which is essentially a, a kind of linguistic mysticism, we are um, divinizing ourselves in a certain kind of way. So, so I guess I was, I, I'm curious about how we, um, what you think about that as, as sort of, you know, the, the kind of internal experience of someone working with these chakras versus the, um, the scientific um, description of them. Yeah. Well, great. Okay. And I'm not sure which article you read, but, uh, but I, I, want to be sure that you read the, the latest one that's actually titled The Subtle Body. Okay. Because um, I wrote two in the New York Academy of Sciences, uh, uh, the annals of the New York Academy of Sciences. Okay. Uh, and, and the point of the second article is actually just explicitly what you're saying, that, that, that in a way the brain and understanding the brain is really not so helpful um, 
for people who are actually trying to practice. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's too complicated. There's too much detail. And, and what, how is it, how does it really relate to my experience? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Francesco Varela tried to found a new field um, called uh, uh, neurophenomenology. Yeah. Which is more describes the way, I mean, Indian science, yogic science, and Buddhist uh, tantric uh, science uh, consider themselves to be sciences. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they do investigate what the this physical, the subtle physical basis or the, the, uh, the relation to the material world uh, is of our practice, of, of deep meditative practice, mental, you know, uh, transformative states of mind, whatever you want to call these things. But they do so from inside, mm. from the standpoint of how it feels. How we feel being in a body is very different from looking at a brain map. Right. And so my point in that paper is to really say, actually, if we're really going to talk about the brain in a sense, we really should be able to translate it into a model that's more about how it feels to be in a human nervous system than about some objective thing that you can dissect or put a scanner on. Um, so that's one piece. I think the other larger question, and this comes up a lot when you know people who are committed spiritually or take it very seriously, take these kind of practices at the highest level of kind of spiritual ambition or whatever, uh, are concerned that perhaps there's a kind of biologizing or, or scientizing, as you put it. I, I'd used that word before. Oh, good. <laughs> uh, you know, a reductionism to it's just, oh, it's oh, it's really just about, you know, molecules. It's just about health. And, and you know, the point is that that's, that's actually also part of the larger Western debate um, because, again, in the Western cosmology, uh, you know, the move to explain the the material basis or substrate or, or component of our lives is all about saying the other stuff doesn't matter or it's not real or it's not really happening. So all that's happening is a bunch of molecules moving around. Um, how spiritual can it be? Right. Um, and that's definitely not the, the my intention or my approach to these things, nor is it obviously the approach of the of the spiritual traditions, whether Hindu or Buddhist, um, the idea really is that, you know, it, the human body is like a vessel or like a crucible or like a boat, uh, that allows us to transform our way of being. Mm. And, and the enlightenment or the big picture there is that that transformation is not just a little, I'm a, I'm a little better. It's a quantum, you know, you know, uh, uh, what they call it, you know, uh, uh, an evolutionary leap to a very different way of being. Um, and, and, you know, when we understand the power of the mind, we understand that the mind can do much more than just make our suffering a little bit less or make us slightly better adjusted or healthier, happier people. It can actually transform the whole way uh, that we're wired by evolution into a way that is actually kind of a higher form of life, a way that really is totally tied into consciousness, totally tied into the higher purpose and the higher potential that we have kind of as much less tangible beings, as, as beings like we're, we're made of the stuff that dreams are made of, right? We, mm. we, we really, in a sense, our minds 
may be somehow rooted in matter, um, but they also open up to uh, to live in and communicate with the, the you know the, the biggest uh, reach of uh, you know awareness and and causality that any living creature has has attained as far as we know. Um, and so the question is, you know, if we, you know, when we wake up in terms of not just I could heal myself, but I could actually transform my fundamental way of being so that I'm really no longer just a creature. I'm not just a product of, of biology or, or neuroscience. I'm a, 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 a conscious, I'm an awakened conscious agent of the universe like a god, hmm. you know. Uh, that's the that that is very much within the possi- within the realm of of uh, you know scientific understanding now. In a sense, we can really talk about the possibility of a brain being integrated by consciousness into consciousness in such a way that it's really no longer a product of of causes and conditions. It's really a conscious instrument, like a like a musical instrument or like a like a, a work of art that can then be used for much higher purposes, like well, experiencing the awesome, you know, realizing the awesomeness of life and the universe, or more importantly, uh, or you know, uh, transforming the lives of the people around us, or the culture, or the way we live, or saving the planet. I mean, these kinds of things um, are very much the the uh, desired impact. Of, of introducing a higher, uh, more integrated, more fully conscious kind of agency. Um, but the whole purpose of my sort of trying to bring the psychology of it in and the neuroscience of it in is really to help um, say that this isn't just pie-in-the-sky, hocus-pocus fantasy, that it's actually, it's not just changing the way we think or the choices we make. It's also changing the fundamental chemistry yeah. Uh, of of what parts of our genome we're using, uh, what parts of our chemical uh, of our chemistry are we relying on, and that kind of capacity to work to push back on evolution and back on neuroscience and to and to shape it is actually creative in a kind of godlike way. So that's you know I, I don't think there's there's uh, as much of a of a, of a Conflict. Conflict. And in yeah. fact, I think that, that there are traditions like the Kalachakra tradition, for example, um, within the Buddhist culture uh, and, and sort of like Abhinav Gupta and so on yes. within the Hindu tradition who really have this kind of understanding that, um, you know, that they're really thinking about how uh, these practices are uh, culturally uh, you know, transform human our whole human way of being, mm. and whether it's you know, I mean, Gupta thinks of it more in terms of of art and creativity, and um, you know, transforming uh, our creative potential or accessing our creative potential. Uh, the Kalchakra thinks of it more in terms of science and and reaching our our uh, full in- capacity for integration uh, and freedom, and you know, freedom of awareness, freedom of uh, uh, of, of, you know, uh, uh, you know, choice or, or, or whatever. And, um, but nonetheless, I think they're both traditions that 
are trying to explain how these kinds of practices work using other sciences or, you know, cultural practices. Um, but that's not that they're not trying to reduce these things to those practices. They're trying to just make them more, a little more accessible and understandable. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, a lot, so many things that you said there at the end really blew me away. And um, I'm sensitive. I want to let you go now. But, uh, you know, this has been so incredible. Thank you so much. We've covered a lot of really fascinating territory. And I know this is going to be a favorite episode for our listeners. So thank you so much, Joe. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you, Jacob. It's a joy to speak to you and to have this fun dialogue. It really is. All right. I'll speak to you soon, Joe. Great. Bye-bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Joe Luizzo. And if you are interested in learning more about Joe and the Nalanda Institute, go to nalandainstitute.org. Until next time, friends. Bye-bye.